When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. It's a very rare thing to meet someone who is the best, the very best in the world at something. But Joe Sacco is the best. Out of all the people in the world who have his job, nobody is better at it than him. The only thing about that is I would be surprised if there are more than 50 people in the entire world who do what he does professionally. Joe Sacco is a journalist slash cartoonist. He draws comic books about the news. I'm not talking about editorial cartoons, which can be great, rarely are, but can be. But that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about long-form nonfiction reporting in the shape of graphic novels. That's what Joe Sacco does. He travels to war zones. He embeds. He researches. He fact-checks. He verifies. And then he draws cartoons. It takes him years, every time. He's done it in Israel and Palestine and Bosnia, and now he's done it in Canada. His most recent book, Paying the Land, is a report from the Northwest Territories. It's about resource extraction in traditional Dene land and its impact on the Dene peoples. But that doesn't even begin to describe this book. 
Because you can't talk about what fracking and mining has done to the Dene without talking about what their lives were like before all of that. And you can't talk about that without talking about trapping and treaties. And to talk about that, you basically need to go back to first contact. And how are you going to then come back and really explain why things are the way they are now without getting into residential schools? But to end things on that sad chapter would be to shortchange all of the organizing and political mobilization that has followed. Of course, I don't know more, but it would be too simple to just try to tie a bow on it there because concurrently with activism, you have some Dene communities that are embracing resource extraction. So you really need to engage with the guts of those industrial processes and the economic outcomes of them and how all of that is challenged now that the price of fuel has collapsed. And finally, in this book about fossil fuel extraction, all of this is under the shadow of climate change, which provides an opportunity to step back and look at the whole history of technological progress as we've defined it and consider some basic philosophical differences in how the Dene and Settler Canada conceive of land and whether people own it or whether it owns us. All of that is in there, in this comic book, in vivid graphic detail. The pictures in this book are extraordinary. They are dense and detailed. They are highly technical and deeply emotional at the same time. Paying the land is a reading experience unlike anything else I can think of. And I think it's the best Canadian journalism. Not really. Uh, Joe Sacco lives in Portland, Oregon. It's the best journalism about Canada that anybody published last year. This is required reading for anyone who lives in this country. And cartoonist Joe Sacco the best in the world at what he does, joins me from Portland to talk about it in just a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Mark Finch, Alison Presnail, Christian Dout, Christopher Hetke, Adam Fortiet, John Moran, Melissa Watkins, and Jim. Hi. This is Jim from Toronto. I support Canada Land because I believe in independent journalism and because I constantly learn new and important things from the slate of shows Canada Land produces. As a middle school teacher, I've appreciated the opportunities it's given me to better understand Indigenous issues and viewpoints and the way it's brought more marginalized voices to the forefront of the media conversation. I use or reference Canada Land in my classroom all the time. I just wish they'd bring back the imposter. Joe, I just finished the book and I'm kind of reeling from it. It's a bit of an overload, sensory overload. And our challenge today is that we have to assume that our listeners have never seen it. Right. I have so much to ask you about it. Normally, we're talking to a reporter, we would just dive in and talk about the story that they covered. But you are a comics journalist. And I think that that's something that uh, I'm a little bit familiar with, but I have to imagine a lot of people might not be. It might be a strange idea to people. The idea of doing journalism through cartoons, I know it's a question you've had to answer a lot, but maybe you'll uh, explore it a little bit with me. How does one do cartoon journalism? I mean, you you can just draw anything. H how do we know that you're telling the truth? Well, I mean, that's fair. I, I think uh, I study journalism, so I hold myself to a journalistic standard, in particular when, when it's uh, in regard to facts, quotes, things like that. I mean, I'm trying to be as accurate as possible. But of course, there's a subjective nature to drawing. You cannot say that a drawing is purely accurate. So there is a little bit of a tension in the work I do, perhaps, between the facts and the quotes, which are should be correct, 
and the drawings, which are my interpretation of some of the things I'm hearing and some of the stories I'm telling. So there's an objective, well, I wouldn't say objective necessarily, a fact-based and a subjective element swirling together in the work I do. I guess we can talk about facts and we can talk about truth. And there are ways in which drawings can be truthful. I think that that might be a difficult concept for some people, especially when the very act of, I'm going to draw a cartoon of you, can be construed as, oh, you're going to make fun of me. Yeah. I mean, if you looked at my early journalistic work, it was more wild in a way. There was more what we call in cartooning the Bigfoot style, where people maybe were made into caricatures as far as what they looked like. As time went by, I realized if this had a pretense to journalism, I had to draw more representationally. So what I try to do is draw people and things as accurately as I can. I mean, it's either based on photographs, based on what I've seen myself. It's not a natural thing for me to try to draw realistically. It's something I've kind of forced out of my hand. I think it, it, it would be, uh, you know, reductive, I guess, to just say that we're on the spectrum of like cartoony to photorealistic. Because if that's the spectrum and the truth or facts lie at the photorealistic end of that spectrum, then why not just have photographs? There's another kind of way in which a drawing of a person can tell the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's about, it's about expression. It's about what you see in a face and what you try to draw out from that face. And it's also the sorts of things that drawings can do that photos, as, as you know, great as photos can be, cannot really do often. They, they cannot take you into certain places. You know, there aren't depictions of the violence in residential schools, for example, exactly in, in photographs. But that's something you can recreate in drawings based on what people have told you, based on research you do, you know, photo research and archives of what the buildings and structures look like, those residential schools. So there's a lot going on with drawings that you can pull out that you don't so much do with photographs. Photographs really... Um, you know, you're trying to tell a whole story with one image. That's kind of the, the gold standard for photojournalism. And with comics, you're trying to build up an atmosphere with repeated images, background information that the reader is taking on into their subconscious. So they get a real feeling for what it's like to be in a place. I've been in that place, not as far into it as you have been. I've been to Yellowknife and to some of the uh, the bush in, in the countryside. And there's something about photographs or even lived experience, like the pictures in my head from being out on a lake are kind of interchangeable with me being out on a lake in cottage country in Ontario. There's something that you were able to get at and describe that is more descriptive than what I actually experienced having briefly been there. Well, I tended to think of the, the land of the Northwest Territories, it's very nature as a land, as a character in the book. So I wanted to show how vast it was, the immensity of it, and the openness of it. You know, I'm a city guy, so I was quite overwhelmed by it, and I wanted the reader to feel immersed in it. It's, it's such a big land, and it has such power in and of itself, just, you know, the immensity of it. Yeah, there, there's some kind of combination of things. I mean, you can draw beautiful, detailed, pretty pictures of landscapes, I mean, the way that we use pictures in journalism often is, you know, informational, but then you also can have that kind of more impressionistic emotional experience that one has to a picture. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, the truth is I was trying to reflect something of what I was getting 
from the people I was talking to, the Dene people, and they were giving me a sense of their love of the land and the importance of the land to them as people. They're, they're highly integrated into the land. And I wanted to sort of give a sense of that spiritual connection in my own way. And that's the way, you know, I can do it is to draw it in a certain way and reflect something of that reverence. To further explore this thing, which I find so interesting about the truth of pictures, you're so out of step with where journalism is at in just terms of like delivering live on the spot immediacy, everybody just delivering us, you know, 30 frames a second of high, high definition video versus this book that took you four years. And yet there's something very contemporary about the questions that your work is bringing up. Art Spiegelman, who of course also done incredible work in nonfiction comics, brought my attention to this, you know, this idea that photos tell the truth, that pictures tell the truth. You might be familiar with this quote. He said, because of Photoshop, we all know that photographs lie every second that they open up their mouths. You can't really trust a photograph. It could have just as easily been a Photoshop collage. And I suppose that's true before Photoshop. It's just that Photoshop kind of opened our eyes to the fact that photographs lie. And he said, it's probably more plausible to trust an artist. You get to feel whether you trust them or not. Artists tend to have to reveal more of themselves, even when they try to be as scrupulous as Joe Sacco. That quote made me remember that we could place you in the comics tradition of, of, a, of a Robert Crumb or an Art Spiegelman, but before photographs, drawings used to run with news stories. They wouldn't have asked somebody to draw that if it didn't happen, right? Like that's how you knew that it happened is some artist drew a picture of it and it went, it went next to the copy. Well, I mean, there were publications like the Illustrated uh, London News, Harper's Magazine in the United States, and I'm sure others around the world where they would send out illustrators with military expeditions, for example. And I guess I'm in that tradition in a way. Like I say, I have a lot of respect for what photojournalism can accomplish. But, you know, you also have to see where, where is a photograph cropped? What else could they have taken a picture of? I mean, there's, there's many, there are many questions around actually all the media. We should all scrutinize ourselves as far as how close we're getting to the truth, you know, within our particular medium. So I just have had to recognize the fact that I draw things a certain way, but I try to draw things so they're recognizable. So whatever subjectivity there is in my drawings, I still want the reader to feel that this is connected to reality. When we talk about like, does that drawing feel true? The way that you achieve that is, is not through mere photorealism. There's like a humanity and a dignity with which you draw your subjects that makes them seem very real. But it strikes me as not so much about a like dependence on does their eye look exactly like that or is the mole in the right place? It's more in the same way that I might look at an actor performing a character and say, was that performance real? Did that feel truthful? But there's a tension there because of course they're, they're play acting. They're in a costume. They might be wearing a wig. They reach the truth through uh, fabulism. Yeah. I don't know if that's an insult to what you're trying to do when you when you get to the truth of how a person talks or feels or presents themselves, but it, it strikes me as more similar to that than a photograph. That resonates with me in a sense because uh, there's a, uh, you know, George Orwell talks about getting to the essential truth of something. And sometimes someone's pose, uh, their manner, the way they swivel their head gives you a real sense of what they might thinking. I mean, body language has a lot to do with it. And um, I'm trying for those sorts of things. You know, you can't, in a way, 
I can't put my finger on all of it because there's a mystery to it, even for myself. And uh, there's part of me that resists trying to demystify it and actually quantify what I'm doing, you know. What's important to me is that when the person who's depicted gets the illustrations or the drawings, they say, yes, this is what it was like. Yeah, there's, there's, I think, a very honest representation of subjectivity in that you put yourself in, in this observer character that, you know, I, I think a lot of people have come to be familiar with that character in comics journalism in this sort of like hapless witness kind of Schmendrick character that like, I think Crumb, I, you know, I associate that with a lot of his comics journalism and then through like actually a lot of Canadian cartoonists drawn in quarterly, mostly doing nonfiction about their own lives. And you're the only character who sort of denied that humanity. Joe, I I've seen photographs of you. You do in fact have pupils <laughs> as opposed to how you draw yourself. But you know, this, this comes, uh, as I try to draw more, re- more representationally, as I try to be more journalistic in my approach to the drawings themselves, everything became more realistic except myself. And that was not a conscious decision. I can draw myself so quickly, it almost became a signature, if you know what I mean. So a couple Mm -hmm. years down the road in this process of drawing uh, more realistically, someone said, how come you still draw yourself that same old way? And I actually hadn't even thought about it. I was so used to drawing myself that way. I was kind of the the character throughout all my books that I just, in my hand, I had this signature of what I looked like. And it's been difficult to sort of pull that into the realistic sphere now. Yeah, but let's explore that a bit. It, it doesn't seem to me that it's just a a function of habit. It works. Like, it's sort of like the simplicity with which you depict yourself gives us a proxy. Like we can see these events through this, this character that would kind of be broken if you looked super detailed or if you, I don't know, had like individualism and were a character that I was meant to kind of like, what's he thinking? What's he feeling at this moment? The focus is on everything else because of how simply you draw yourself. Yes. Scott McCloud, who wrote a book called understanding comics and is probably the first cartoonist anyway, to really break down what comics do has said that my character is uh, a little nondescript and that helps the reader put themselves in my shoes because I'm not so defined, as you're, as you're saying. And that might very well be a function of the way I've drawn myself, but really, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it too much as I was doing it. There's a lot, there's a lot in comics you, know, you don't think about so much as you do impulsively or, or just because you're, you know, you've been carrying on that way for years and years. Yeah. I mean, again, it, 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 it is in dialogue with other questions that journalists are increasingly asking about, well, isn't it more honest if rather than just sort of present these as, as God-given facts, let me own the fact that I'm here and uh, I'll be your guide and I'll, I'll host this, but I might not be necessarily a completely impartial observer, so I'll try to inhabit a character, but then I don't want to get in the way of the story. All of these dynamics are kind of like where we're at with trying to give the most honest and accurate stories that we can. Again, it was also almost accidental why I appear in my comics. I appear in my comics because I started out in the autobiographical tradition mm-hmm. of, of cartooning. So it was when I started doing journalistic comics, I just naturally put my character in there because that's what I'd, I had been doing. But now the advantage of that and the uh, consequence of that, which I hadn't really you know, thought out thoroughly, 
was that it's a tip off to the reader that you are seeing this through someone's eyes. You're seeing this through one individual. And, you know, I, as I mentioned, I went to journalism school and what was emphasized to us is that we were supposed to be objective reporters that didn't appear in the story. But reporters are always getting in the way of their story. They're tripping it up. They're tripping over it. And I wanted to sort of demystify the process of getting the story and also as honestly as possible to show my relationship to the people I'm with, to show where my sympathies lie, to show what my prejudices are, what has to be sort of taken apart, even in my own thinking, to show the process of learning, basically. And I think all reporters go through that. I'm just, uh, I expose it because I think that's just part of the process. And process to me is really interesting. And, and I just want to be sort of transparent about it. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Speaking of the prejudices that you brought to this my understanding is that this whole project began with your idea of Canada as uh, the North Americans who got it right. Yeah. I know you were, you were pursuing a project that was supposed to be about indigenous peoples and uh, resource extraction all around the world. And you're like, let me start with someplace a little bit safe. You know, Canada, we've got a brand We're we're a gentle civil place, uh, maybe navigable as a Western society to you. Did that match the truth that you found when, when you, when you went to the Northwest territories? No, absolutely not. I mean, I thought it would, would be a relatively easy story. I was originally doing it for a magazine, so it was going to be a much shorter piece. It was clearly complicated. It was clearly much more complex than I had bargained for. My prejudice was thinking, 
of indigenous people as sort of a monolith that all had the same relationship to resource extraction, basically, that they would be against it. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you get there and you find out, well, there's some of that, but there is some of this as well. And there's a dialogue, this sort of a dialectic going on in the Northwest Territories between communities and within communities. And I also began to see that you cannot talk about resource extraction without talking out about the bigger colonial project that had been going on in Canada. So suddenly I was kind of really beginning to get a sense that this is much bigger than I had intended or anticipated. And so I had to come back for a second trip and and explore some of those things. It really pulled me in. How natural it is in the book, how one thing leads to the other, looking at fracking as it, I guess, has been practiced. I'm not sure how much it's practiced right now and how it's uh, impacting Dene communities. Like, it's like you can't talk about that without talking about those communities themselves, their origins, their relationship with the land. You can't talk about that without talking about economies now, poverty now, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. You can't talk about those things, and it's sort of irresponsible to talk about those things without talking about residential schools. And once you take on the burden of that storytelling, you got to do it right if you're going to do it at all. Well, I just had to sort of meet the story where it was, and it's, as you say, you, you have to sort of unravel it and see what are the consequences of colonialism, what led to the point we're at now in Canada, as you mentioned, alcoholism. Well, when you know, you have to be sort of responsible about it. If you're talking about alcoholism, as you say, you have to talk about residential schools. You have to talk about the whole project of cutting people off from the land of trying to eradicate their culture and understand that that's the connection you have to make. If you're going to attack someone's culture, it has its consequences. And so part of the story is putting all that stuff together in the best way I can. And of course, I want to tell all those stories through the eyes of Indigenous people who were very generous with me in letting me into what had happened in their lives. You can feel the gravity with which you you held their trust in the way that these things are depicted. It's still, it's uncomfortable, right? It shouldn't be comfortable, but it's it's uh, it's difficult to tell the stories about what happened to other people when it involves abuse like that. Yeah, it was very difficult. I mean, I've had um, other experiences uh, trying to draw stories that I heard in war zones um, and drawing some of those scenes of massacres was always really unpleasant. And I felt the same feeling when I was drawing the scenes that were taking place in the residential schools. I mean, basically a dread of getting up in the morning and going to the drawing table, but also knowing that, you know, people have shared their stories with you and you have to honor what they've told you and and sort of get over your own sensibilities, basically, and just approach approach what they've told you as directly as possible and try to do their stories justice. We talk about this stuff in Canada with some regularity, but to actually, from beginning to end, from from, from the way it was for people who lived on the land, to the plane coming in, hiding from the planes, going to residential school, what that process was like, which you're right, I've never seen that. I've heard people tell those stories, but seeing it uh, recreated in that way and then seeing it in terms of the internal life of the children who were taught these things and then not leaving it there either, because you do talk about a new generation 
you tie it to idle no more. You, you tie it to the ways in which activism and organization is different for this generation than for prior generations. Uh, again, the, the scope is really remarkable. But you do reflect on your own role, and it's brief. But you do for a moment in the book ask the question, what's the difference between me and an oil company? We've both come here to extract something. Can you talk a little bit about what you went to the Northwest Territories to extract? I suppose what I went to extract were the stories of people and the stories of people within the framework of colonialism and the effects of colonialism and the unspooling effects of colonialism. That could be a difficult process because a lot of people there told me that, you know, we have researchers coming here, we have PhD students we have anthropologists coming here, and they get something from us. We tell them our knowledge. We tell them uh, what life has been like here and about our culture. And then what benefit do we get out of it? You know, people go off and get their degrees and publish mm -hmm. their book. And I have to ask myself, where do I fit in, in that equation? And I, I hope, the hope is that the book itself can be returned to the people there and they can see their own stories depicted and that Canadians can see those stories and they can see the, the wide range of stories and maybe take away some of those prejudices that they might have, as, as I probably had when I went in, you know, as I mentioned, thinking of Indigenous people as sort of monolithic group and just learning along with me, basically. I've tried as much as possible to be careful with the stories and present them in a way that's as respectful as possible. Because along the road of doing this story, I was reminded by people, you know, you're a, you're a white guy going in there doing this stuff. And, and these days we're much more cognizant of where someone comes from when they're telling someone else's story. And I do come from the West, but part of the gift that I got from doing this story was it helped me examine my own beliefs, my own prejudices, my own Western nature. And, you know, an anthropology of one people is sort of an anthropology of the anthropologist on, on some level. I want to show there was sort of a reciprocal relationship that if I took something, I gave something back. That's interesting. I mean, that moment came about when somebody asks you for money in exchange for their story. And you kind of scoff at that because of course that's, that's against our rules, right? But there's another moment later on where a Dene woman is trying to learn from an elder how to tan a moose hide, if I remember correctly, and she's writing down the instructions and the elder says, what are you doing? Just just do it. These are different traditions. These are, these are different ways of learning things, different ways of seeing things and doing things. Right. I mean, the way she put it to me was that she had to decolonize herself. She had to stop thinking in terms of the way Westerners think of things and think of things in terms of how a Dene person thinks of things. And so, you know, the process of decolonization is something that, you know, a concept that I came across there. People thinking about who they are and trying to not think of themselves through the eyes of someone else, of the Westerner. And in a way, it's not just the colonized that have to decolonize themselves. It's the colonizers, in a way, that have to decolonize themselves. And on some level, I 
would have to think of myself as part of the colonial project. And what this book helped me do is becoming, first of all, aware of the fact of myself in the colonial project, in my case, you know, in the United States, as an immigrant, recent immigrant, but still basically living off the fruits of colonialization. So this book helped me think in those terms and, and helped me decolonize myself on some level. I mean, I'm sure there's a long way to go, but uh, that was sort of another gift I, I felt I got uh, from this whole project. There's a whole dialogue going on, Nothing About Us Without Us, uh, a movement for Indigenous representation, both in terms of who's telling the story, who are the journalists. But there's a bit of a, there's also bridge building. You've said that how your sources and subjects feel about being portrayed matters more to you than, uh, you know, even good reviews of the book. That's not something journalists are supposed to say. Reporters aren't supposed to care about that. We're supposed to care about the facts, about accuracy and... You know, if your subject, if your source doesn't like how they're portrayed, which happens all the time, you know, tough shit. That's not supposed to be your problem. Does that kind of fall under this decolonization of your practice as a journalist to uh, to question, I guess, some of those concepts about how we tell stories? Well, yeah, I, th- I think pretty much in all my work, I realize that I'm I'm usually visiting a place for what can be a relatively short time. I mean, I was only in the Northwest Territories in, in total over two trips for about six weeks. I've spent, you know, four months in certain places, two months here, one month there. But those are relatively short times. So I feel like I can get a taste of something. But ultimately, it's always been what the people I've made those connections with when I'm there, what they think of the book. How do they think about how they were portrayed? And I've portrayed people in ways that were unflattering, that they still thought was fair. So it is possible to do that as long as they can recognize themselves and not feel it's a, you know, to use the cartooning word, the caricature, then I'm getting closer to, you know, something that I, I can I can be sort of proud of. In this case, the stuff that I was most worried about was going back into the past and depicting stories of people living in the bush an experience that doesn't really exist anymore in that same way. And, you know, I did my photo research. I did a lot of research and I, I sent the the uh, pages to some of, you know, one of the people in question, Paul Andrew, and he was happy about it. Uh, he felt that it, it worked. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he could have quibbled about certain things, but I think in the end he felt it was a very useful project for helping younger people understand what he went through. And if he was satisfied with it, then that is where I was content. I felt, okay, um, I can feel good about this book. You have to trouble yourself with thinking what the people you're depicting are going to, how they're going to relate to the material. I don't think of those people as people you sort of, you know, you extract from and leave behind. In the end, there has to be sort of a remediation of some, you know, some attempt to make it as painless as possible and to present something that they think, okay, this was worth our time. One thing that I think diverges from the way these stories are usually told is the lack of conflict in a certain way. If people come, especially if somebody's going to come and drop in to do a story about 
resource extraction in the Canadian North, I would expect them to go to the tar sands. Um, if they were to do it now, I would expect it to be the tar sands or Wet'suwet'en. You went somewhere where, you know, the price of oil is so low that, you know, the fracking that you're documenting isn't really taking place. These were not depictions of protests stopping pipelines. You really document the nuance with which different communities are taking different positions as to if resource extraction should take place and if so, what are the terms? But the typical journalistic question of, you know, going to the CEO or to the oil companies for comment the nature of the story you're telling, it, it didn't feel like it was um, a journalistic necessity in this case. No, it didn't feel like it to me because I think that's the dominant thats the dominant narrative you're going to get is from government and from business. And I was much more interested in the different opinions and often conflicting opinions I found within the indigenous community. So I was much more focused on that. It is as much a uh, exploration of like your education, trying to come to terms with a very different way of thinking. And it feels to me like the book climaxes with this moment where you're depicting a young Dene man who has this amazing moment of spiritual connection on a hunt with his ancestors, with future generations, with the land, thinking about the feet that stepped where he is. You're trying to illustrate something that he was generously conveying to you, but it's almost like I could feel you like, like something clicking in that moment and then clicking for me as the reader. Um, that maybe I'd never really understood before, not just a, a different form of spirituality, but just a different way of situating oneself. You know, I can read on the back of the book a nice sentence like, the Dene don't feel like they own land, they feel like the land owns them. And that seems like a nice, concise summary of something, but it, it kind of, it takes the whole book for that to really make sense to me. And I don't know, just talking to you now, it feels like that's as much about you coming to understand that as as you telling that story uh, of it happening to someone else. Well, I think you depict only what you can begin to understand. And if I, maybe if I didn't understand, I would never have depicted that. But to see Indigenous people and someone like uh, him, Eugene Boulanger, talking about the past and the future and the connection between those things, that to me is in quite uh, contrast to how we think in the West. This generation now we can barely think of what our children are going to inherit. Yeah. I didn't want to be so explicit about the uh, ecological lessons from the book in a way in the book, but just the fact that someone will think of the past and the future as a continuum and the responsibility to it. It's a pretty simple and powerful message and some something to know. And that spiritual connection, which we, we simply don't have those we don't talk in those terms in the West. No, and I think it I think it gets filed, and maybe I personally dismiss these things as like, I don't know, like an undergrad on some spiritual journey where they appropriate somebody else's spirituality, as opposed to through narrative, you kind of take us to this place where that mentality and that worldview feels incredibly current and incredibly important as you're illustrating, you know, a way of containing arsenic underground that only has a 100 year safety guarantee. And as we're all facing like, uh, you know, really imminent and present consequences to how we've extracted from the land, that other philosophy doesn't feel like some flaky form of appropriation. It feels like something that's like burning with urgency. That's our version of paying the land. You know, there is no spiritual component. And I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm not a religious guy, but 
it's a bit humbling to be around people who, um, at their best, I think, live a spirituality. And I think we would be right in the West to sort of think about that a little. Joe, I want to thank you. You know, in addition to everything else, uh, exploring pictures on the radio is a unique challenge. So I appreciate your willingness to do that with me. Oh, it was a real pleasure, Jesse. Thank you. That is your Canada Land. Since you've listened this far, you've decided that it's worth your time. I think it's also worth your support. And I want you to think about supporting us by clicking on the link in the show notes or going to canadaland.com join, where you can get an ad-free feed and other stuff for as little as five bucks a month. Think about it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. We have a newsletter where we round up everything that we publish every week. That's worth your time, too. Our producer this week is Roslyn Kufour. Additional production by Kevin Sexton and Kasia Mihailovic. Canada Land's managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like Canada Land, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a campside media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.